It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live! Woohoo! This week, starring special guest star Mr. Steve Barton. Yay, baby! Woo! Hi, Steve. <laughs> Hi, Michael. <laughs> Welcome back to the big show, buddy. Thank you for having me back. Oh, I'm glad to. Uh, is this your second or third time? Second. Fourth. Fourth? Well, time that you, well that's right. We first did the time ones at your house. At my house. Right. And then we did uh, two last year, and they were kind of back-to-back. -back. Right. That's right. Um, and because I will probably, but I, you know what? I told you last time I saw you that I had given away the book that you signed. I didn't. I thought oh, I had. Oh, you still have I still have it. Oh, my gosh. So anyway, um, aside from being an extremely good composer-producer, uh, Steve also wrote this book a year and a half ago-ish? Uh, yeah, about a year and a half. Yeah. Um, it's an amazingly good book that lots of taxi members have, writing production music for TV by Steve Barden. Uh, he, he covers everything you've ever wanted to know basically in this book it, but it's we're a, afraid to ask yeah it's a manual you know and, and so anyway he and i were chatting a couple of weeks ago we gave away a copy of the book and uh, i mentioned on air thinking steve might actually see the show that and i did he should uh bring some books by or send them to me or whatever so i could give some away and he brought me a whole stack about I don't know, two weeks ago and i said why don't you come back and be on the show so here he is and let's say hello to our audience, Ann House, Mojo Bone, Woody Bradfield, Darren Fletcher, Chapters Publishing. Oh, hey, Pat War, I just saw Pat in uh, Hawaii like 24 hours ago. <laughs> Howling Wolf, Bob Gunnerfeld, uh, Tom Hips, Vincent Nicotina, Stephen Spinner, Martin Frog, David Zimmer, Linda Collum, David, David SJH. Uh, Pierre Screamy Bird Studios. Anyway, hello, everybody. Um, before we jump into the show, I want to say thank you to the folks at the Hawaii Songwriting Festival. Um, Charles Brotman, his wife Joni, and their daughter Julia did an amazingly good job. It's the only other conference other than the Taxi Road Rally that I participate in. Um, I'm proud to be part of that family because it has become like a family over the years. I think I've been to 15 of them and uh, just had a great weekend. And, uh, Anyway, if you ever get a chance to go to that, uh, the Hawaii Songwriters Festival, Google it and go. So that's that. Uh, while I'm mentioning festivals, let's talk about the Taxi Road Rally, which is coming up November 7th through the 11th. Here, what? 7th through the 10th. 7th through the 10th, sorry. <laughs> I wrote 11th. I wrote 8th through the 11th on my piece of paper. You'll when, still be there. <laughs> yeah, I will be. <laughs> I guarantee you I'll be there. Uh, anyway, it's the 7th through the 10th here in Los Angeles. you got to be a taxi member to come. Each and every taxi member gets two free tickets. Do you pay $400, $500, $800 like some other conferences? No. If you're a taxi member to get two freebies, one for you and one for a guest of your choosing, absolutely. Uh, so that's that. And today, Steve and I are going to talk about composer hacks because we were kind of dancing around like, can we talk about this, talk about that? I said, why don't we just do composer hacks and he said oh you mean like common sense tips for production music composers and I went yep exactly so here he is um, I, I laughed I saw your little thing on the notes that you sent me don't eat yellow snow a metaphor for everything in life um, stuff that should be common sense but isn't which is you know it's funny 
after you're around this stuff for a while, you don't even have to have heard something in the past for it to register with you. The common sense factor kicks in. You go, oh, I shouldn't do it that way because that might be a little dumb. Uh, But a lot of people just don't know because they've never been through the process. They don't know. So let's talk about the the first hack. (laughs) I made a note. says jet lag. Yeah, I want to mention to you guys, I am really jet lagged. I kept waking, going to sleep at like 9.30, 10 o'clock over there and waking up at 2.30, between 2.30 and 4.30 in the morning. So I got home last night, 10.30. I'm really stupid today. So if I just fall over, Steve will just pick it up and run with it. (laughs) Um, Can we... Start with managing your expectations. Are you okay with making that one first? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I I just jotted down a random list of things that, to me, are like things that are should be common sense, but it's it's really not if you talk to people, because like we all know that that one person who will eat the yellow snow. Yeah, or somebody will put their car in reverse without looking what's behind them. Yeah, common sense would tell you. Yeah, looking exactly. In the rearview mirror over your shoulder. Yeah. Where's my kid? Oops. To say. Right. So manage your expectations. That something that has occurred to me over and over about not just yourself, but for other people. I, I, I mean, because I've had employees work under me before. And it's like you need to manage their expectations so they know what their job is and what they, you know, what they should expect. No raises this year. <laughs> There's an expectation. That's, definitely. But the same thing for yourself. And when I, when I say that, I mean define for yourself what success means to you because success means something different to everybody it could be right you're somebody with a a full-time 40-hour a week gig and you can't expect the same thing out of pursuing film and tv music that somebody who can work at it 10 hours a day would and success for this person over me could be entirely different like for them to be uh, either a music library composer or a film composer or a singer-songwriter superstar it could be different for me. I'm happy just to write music that pleases me. Or I'm happy to get music in a music library. Or I'm happy to get music on a TV show. There's so many different levels. Right. It's Success does not mean the same thing to everybody. So if you can sort of define what it, what it does for you to be happy in life, then that'll go a long way to succeeding, whether you succeed or not. Because if you're frustrated because you haven't reached... This, this this crazy perception of, of what success is. Uh, you know, you might just be lying to yourself, fooling yourself. Let's talk about one measurement of success that I, it doesn't really tick me off. It befuddles me a little bit, yet I understand it at the same time, which is I haven't earned back the $300 I invested in taxi in my first year. <laughs> uh-huh. We hear that one a lot. It's a, I've seen people talk about it on other on message boards all over the internet. Did you make your $300 back? And, and it always makes me scratch my head going, do people really think that you know taxi is only valid if you spend 300 and make 300 in the first year? That's always the caveat. Mm-hmm. So set them straight, Steve. <laughs> um, you use this anecdote a lot of, of if you were to start any other kind of business other than what we're trying to do through taxi, for example, open a restaurant, mm-hmm. you have to invest money in certain things. You have to get the proper tools, which are knives and spatulas and, and pans and so forth. You're, you will never open up a business like a restaurant and a year later say, did I make all that money back that I invested for all that equipment? 
even a, yeah, and you have to figure it's not just income. You got to think profit, mm -hmm. right? Because you might gross, you know, a hundred thousand dollars that year, but you might have invested a hundred and fifteen to get the doors open. Right. So your investment into your business could take five years before you start seeing a return on investment. So you have to be prepared for that upfront, which is managing an expectation. Yeah. But if all you want is your three hundred dollars back from your first year of taxi then you might be able to get that back in a couple of years. But again, you have to put in the, in the effort. It doesn't just happen after a couple of uh, right. submissions and <laughs> yeah. forwards. I mean, it has happened on rare occasions for some people, but it's extremely rare. It's, uh, it's, it's rare, yeah. yeah. So Most people, uh, I always tell people, consider the first year your learning year, that mm -hmm. you've just invested $300 in your education, or you could go to USC for like 50K for a year. Mm -hmm and then try and make that 50k back the year after you go there. <laughs> yeah, I sort of equated, I play racquetball, and the first game is always a warm-up game. Mm. Like you, you could suck in your first game, but you might kill it the, the rest of the day. And I, I treat music as the same thing, like this is my warm-up cue, or this is my warm-up library, or whatever. It's just getting to know the thing and, and learning from that, and then, and then you get better as you go. I do that at the road rally when I'm moderating panels. I always hit the panelists with something I know that they can answer comfortably, just to get them comfortable looking out at the audience and, you know, just feeling like it's it's working. You know, because I know people uh, they get up on that stage, they look out and see a thousand people in the ballroom, and even if they're they've been on panels before, there's still that moment of. <laughs> so I, I purposely do that when I write my questions. Like, how long have you been doing this, Steve? You know, something you could answer blindfolded in yeah, your sleep. Exactly. Um, and, and you're right about expectations. As for some for some people, it's monetary because that is that's a good measure. You know, X number of dollars. But um, I like the fact that you mentioned: Can I get one thing in a library? Can I get ten things in a library? Is success making uh, one cue per week? just getting good enough to have that kind of output. So you're right, it's not all about the money. Well, this, this is a good segue into the, to the next hack, which is have a plan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, my plan is I want to be successful. <laughs> I, well, I, I have a quote in my book uh, that it, chaos is not a strategy. It's right there in that book. <laughs> okay, so by a plan, I mean, Okay, for example, what, what genres and styles of music do you want to write? You might not know yet. You might uh, have played in a band where you've played a lot of different things, and you're still kind of finding your way until you figure out exactly what you're the best at. You're not really going to get too far. Um, but yet people will take pot shots at everything just because it, it sounds tempting. You know, they'll see a taxi request, a listing go out that says, uh, we need, you know, uh, polka music for a $30,000 TV spot, and all of a sudden everybody's trying polka, even though they've never done it before. Sure. So, so I understand why they do it, but I think your point is well taken. You know what? You might find out that you're excellent at polka. You've talked about Stephen Baird, how he didn't, he's a, this, this white kid from <laughs> the Burbs that all of a sudden became this hip hop giant. Yeah. You know, who knew? Yeah. And maybe you can become the polka king, you know? <laughs> well, there is a village in, in Poland named Lasko. So there you go. <laughs> there so you I, go. Yes. <laughs> or no, polka, where's polka from? Germany. I believe so. Somebody check that out and let us know. Um, <laughs> oompa, oompa. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so let's talk about what are some of the elements that should be in a plan. Because, yeah, okay, Steve says I should have a plan. Now, what should my plan be? Well, let me, let me uh, just cover one other, one other okay. thing about this plan is that um, I always try to encourage people to find success early. And by that, I mean figuring out what it is that you do best and pursuing that before you pursue other things that you're not quite as good at. So you're talking genres. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So So you might want to wait on the polka thing for a bit until what, you've what really if they do a genre that they're really good. What if polka is their genre and that's the thing they do really well with uh, or well at I'm not sure which preposition I should use there. Um, and they never see any polka listings. Um, what do they do? What if there are not a lot of requests in the genres that they are most competent in? And that happens a lot. Um, the places you're going to, first of all, you need to search them out. you got to figure out who uses polka music. Well, travel shows probably. Right. So that's a, a venue that you can, you can hunt down. Uh, but yeah, your opportunities are limited. You won't find as many for polka. Um, so that's where I, you know, I talk about creating a list of 10 styles, genres that you know, that you know how to play. And, and then be honest. Be honest and try to, try to rate them on a scale of this is the one I do the best, I know the best, I have the most experience with, and then go down the line. And if polka happens to be the first one, but there aren't a lot of opportunities, then let's move on to the, the second one and see if you can get something from that. Would you recommend, even if you're a songwriter, um, maybe in the beginning, and I, this isn't a loaded question that I already think I know the answer to, I'm just curious about what, what your opinion is. Uh, would you, if you're a songwriter, would you start out doing instrumentals? Because I personally believe they're easier to do because you don't have to write a, a lyric and you don't have to sing a vocal, easier mix. Uh, are instrumentals an easier point of entry into the business? It could be, because if you have a song with lyrics, you can easily just remove the vocal and replace that melody with some instrument. Right. Whether it's a guitar, piano, flute, saxophone, whatever. And start to learn about instrumental music that way. But could you submit that to a library, being that it's probably close to four minutes long and has a 35-second intro and typical song structure? I mean, there are times that they just say they want instrumentals versus they want cues. Mm -hmm. and you know what? I should have you address this. What's the difference between an instrumental that is structured like a song and how a typical TV cue would be structured? Um, yeah, I mean, a song typically has like an introduction, a verse, and then maybe a next, another verse, and then a chorus, and then back to another verse, and then maybe a bridge, and then a chorus, and then a verse. You know, it, it's, there could be many different sections mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of repetition. Um, instrumental cues are typically A, B, A. Mm -hmm. An A section is one thing. The B section is similar but different. And then the final A section is the same as the first section, but with some variations to it. Right, maybe a couple more instruments and a little sense of here comes the crescendo and the ending. Exactly. I, I call it forward momentum. Yeah. In, in reality, um, most music library stuff that's in, in reality TV does not get that much of the music played. It could be 
12 seconds. It could be 30 seconds. I mean, it, really, if you're lucky. A minute, yeah. a minute's really long. Right. You've hit, that's a once-a-year occurrence, and you've hit it out of the ballpark. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I had the longest queue I think I've ever had is close to two minutes, but that I think that only happened once. I always tell people, uh, I think I might have even mentioned that to the, the folks in Hawaii this weekend. They did a, a thing called Music Libraries 101. And I said, my advice if you play keyboards is do uh, cocktail, jazz, instrumental, solo, piano stuff, because that will generally run longer. And the reason is, is it's frequently heard under people having dinner in a fine dining restaurant or a bar scene or something where there's dialogue going on for a minute or two. And those scenes can go run long, yeah. Right. So that's, that's a really <laughs> good If you want the go. long plays, go for solo piano. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and go for, you know, imagine that you're taking your wife out to dinner for the 10th anniversary dinner. What would be playing at that restaurant if you don't take her to McDonald's? Because you won't get to the 11th anniversary if you do that. Just saying. Yeah, that's, I mean, Bob Mede is... Made, made a career out of that. You know, he's I, I actually well mentioned him on the panel. Uh -huh. <laughs> he has. He's done really well on it. Um, and, and, well, you know what? Let's talk. Let's include Bob in this convo for a second because he's a great example of managing expectations. He's got a full-time job, and he sells something. I don't know what it is that he sells, but he's on airplanes like five days a week mm. all over the country. And somehow the guy is still um, productive enough to crank out a substantial body of work every year. Mm -hmm. But his expectation is probably not the same as somebody who is looking to make 200 grand a year and work 50 hours a week at this because he's got that other job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's part of that plan. And that was the other yeah. one. How many tracks uh, will you create over a given amount of time? So you need to give yourself a reasonable expectation. Say I want to write, I told myself I want to write 50 tracks this year. So that's basically one track a year. Well, you know, six months into oh, it. One track a week. I'm sorry, one track a week. What did I say? A, day? Uh, a year. A year. Yeah. We knew what you meant. <laughs> Sometimes I do one track a year. Um, one track a week. And if I get six months into it and I find out, find out I've only done 10 or 15 tracks, then I, I need to modify my plan a little bit. And because that's a realistic expectation now that I have to give myself. I'm not going to hit 50. That, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's good to have uh, grand plans, but you also need to be able to make adjustments and be realistic. Because if I get to the end of the year and I've only done 20 tracks, am I going to feel terrible about myself because I couldn't reach this, this mark? Some people would. Yeah. They I, shouldn't, but they do. I, yeah, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's good for your soul to do that. So I think if you can manage it now, say, okay, maybe you ended up only doing 20, but if I said, okay, I'm going to set my new goal to be 30 instead of 50, but you only hit 20, that's not bad. Right. Okay. Next year, try to push yourself a little bit harder, but you use that, that last year to look at what happened. Why couldn't I achieve that? Um, you know, right. Was it procrastination? Was it uh, circumstances beyond my control? Family and, obligations. Right. Those these take up a lot, and you know you have to deal with those. So find ways to work around that and be realistic in what you can produce. I, I, I spend probably more time than I should talking about our most successful members, and, you know, and that's largely largely judged by the quantity of music they make and the quantity of money they make which usually go hand in hand uh, and you're reminding me that I probably shouldn't land on that or push that aspect 
of Taxi in our members so much because for some people, 20 pieces of music in a year would be a landmark event because last year they only did two. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Do 20 this year, do 30 next year. But I hold out the guys, you know, the Matt Hertz of the world that have 1,500 pieces or more out there in the wild and people just hear that number and they go, oh gosh, I'll never get there. But Matt yeah. Hurt didn't. They the didn't do it in one year. Right. And, and he probably did 20 in his first year, mm -hmm. as productive as he is. Mm -hmm. But, you know. Yeah. Uh, I also find I'm more productive when I have a reason to write something. Like if, if a library comes to me and says, Steve, we're doing a, an album of this kind of music. Can you write some tracks for it? Well, then I'm going to try to crank up the, the output and, and deliver more than I normally would write in, the, in that period of time. I might get burned out from doing it, but I work better with deadlines. So yeah, don't I, we all? <laughs> you know, yeah. But like if the, I'm just the writing, test is tomorrow, better cram. Yeah, but if I'm just writing to try to meet my weekly goal, uh, you know, I might slip here or there. You know, um, I forgot to hold up my signs, and I know <laughs> Bree is going to kick me under the table, so I'm doing this to avoid getting my shins bruised. Make sure you subscribe to our channel because we do really good shows every week, like eh, 48 weeks out of the year. So you don't want to miss the stuff. Share with your friends and family. See that little bell up there in the right-hand corner? Click that sucker and you get alerts. Alerts are cool. And last but not least, <laughs> I was watching an episode of... Uh, Oh gosh, what's, uh, I can never think of it. It's like Friends with Nerds. I can never think of the name of the show. Big Bang Theory. Big Bang Theory. Watching it last night, falling asleep, and there was an episode where Sheldon had to force himself to smile, and his smile was like, it was killing me. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen him smile on the show in all those years. Um, you also made a note about attending conferences and considering I was just talking about a conference. Yeah. Um, talk about why they're valuable, what are some of the conferences you should go to, and twist the arms of people that say, oh my gosh, it's going to cost me you know, $400 for the airfare and $150 a day for the hotel room, so I'm looking at a $1,000 expenditure to go to that conference, and will I come home with $1,001 in my pocket? No. So convince them yeah. otherwise. Uh, and it is hard, and, and I can certainly understand it. I mean, I live in Southern California, so I can make the taxi rally every year. It's convenient for me. Mm -hmm. But I can understand people traveling across the world to get here. And people do. They come from and Australia and Hong Kong and, and Venezuela. And or, well, no, uh, Brazil. <laughs> Nobody comes from Venezuela yeah. anymore. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but, yeah, kudos to them for, for, for doing it, but making the effort. Yeah, so at least the conference itself, the taxi rally, is free to, to members. So it's you don't have to worry about that. It's the only one that is. Um, other conferences can be uh, as educational. Um, not as the road rally. Not as the road rally, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it there, says there are some. They can be. Um, but yeah, so you eliminate that part of it. <laughs> but other conferences, yeah, are really expensive. Yeah. Um, but I recommend trying to go to as many as you can. You know. If, if there are local ones, maybe not as big as like an ASCAP Expo or uh, uh, um, the PMA, the uh, Production Music Associations Conference. Yeah, um, all good conferences. There might be smaller versions of that in in your hometown, um, 
it's important to go one for education because you'll always learn something. There'll be some kind of a panel on the business, uh, but most importantly, it's about networking, meeting people, meeting colleagues, meeting people in the business uh, that are like, say, the publishers, the music supervisors, uh, the movers and shakers, the ones you want to get your music to. And networking is, is the number one element, um, which also happens at the taxi rally. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I have found um, making connections with, with your colleagues that have become, for me at least, lifelong friendships. And not only friendships, which are certainly valuable, but, um, oh, you play guitar, I don't. And they're working out, or there's an opportunity for them and they need a guitar part and you meet in the registration line at the taxi road rally or at the bar one night and you end up playing guitar in their thing and you find that you really like working together and you end up doing a lot of stuff together. And in the nicest sense of the word, you get to ride their coattails into their relationships because you do something that they don't do well and, and the reverse would be true. Especially if, if you work at, in sort of a mentor-mentee that mentee yeah. <laughs> relationship where somebody who has more experience you're collaborating them with on a pro with them on a project and they're opening these doors for you yeah. and then on, then you're in then you're on the inside uh, in that part of the world and you know it just continues you know you meet more people you, you do collaborations um, you know maybe this person signed to a library and you guys now, now you have your music signed in, in a library because of this this friendship you know, you can try doing it all yourself. It's it's much harder. But. I watched a movie on the plane. And it was uh, about a guy who picks up a lot of girls in bars, and he's really good at it, and he's teaching Steve Carell, who's going through a divorce, how to do it. And Steve Carell, you know, it's like, don't talk about your ex-wife cheating on you. Don't mention the guy's name that she cheated with. Don't talk about your kids. And Steve Carell, within 10 seconds of meeting his first girl, blows every rule <laughs> and, and ends up going home with uh, Marissa Tomei. So good job, Steve Carell. <laughs> but uh, it reminded me, as I'm watching it, I was thinking about little snippets of things I saw at the Hawaii Songwriters Conferences or Festival this weekend, and I see it every year at the Road Rally which is people hard-charging industry people. Hi, I just saw you on a panel. Here's my CD or here's a thumb drive with my music. And the industry people are like, whoa, slow down, dude. You know, mm -hmm. let's... So I, the advice I always give is don't like run up to them right after the panel and wait till an hour or two later you see them in the bar and walk up and order a beer while they're ordering their beer at the bar and go, oh man, I just saw you on the panel before. Do you mind if I ask you, how did you end up becoming a music supervisor? Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the industry? You know, ask them about them, and inevitably the conversation will end, or at least lead to, so what do you do? Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, I, you know, I do TV music. Well, what kind of TV music? And you better have a good answer, not I do rock, I do pop, I do country, I do this, I do that. Think about the one or two things you do really well, and if you're really good, you will have stalked this person a little bit before you bump into them at the bar. And if you know that they work on reality TV shows, say, uh, I do instrumental cues for reality TV. And they'll go, oh, I, uh, do you have anything I can listen to? That's the way it's done, in, in my humble opinion. Networking is so crucial, and 
what you described is called the elevator pitch. Right. So you have a 10 or 15 second speech prepared that describes what you do in a nutshell without being overly braggy. Right. And it, it, and it just, it breaks the ice. I, I feel bad. Every year we get calls from people say, you know, I'm really shy and I'm not comfortable in crowds and, and I'm afraid to come to the road. I, I would never have the courage to walk up to an industry person. And I immediately go to the guy sitting in the pilot seat in the movie airplane with the sweat just pouring down his brow. And I think these poor people, I, I really feel for them. And, you know, I've noticed that the road rally in particular at, at our conference, November 7th through the Tenth. <laughs> I've got. I blew it all weekend long in Hawaii telling people it was the eighth through the eleventh. I don't know what the hell's the matter with me. Anyway, I've I've noticed that uh, the ease at which shy people can approach both industry people and colleagues at the road rally seems to be easier and better at the road rally. And I think that has a lot to do with you guys, our members. That everybody's so supportive and encouraging that they don't come across as intimidating and it gives people who would otherwise be shy an easy entree to making friends there. It's I, kind of cool. I have found the, the people that, that have reached this upper echelon of, of whatever, you know, composing or songwriting or, you know, whatever, whatever business they're in, the people that are the most generous and the most kind um, are the ones that are usually the most, most successful. The ones that are uh, uh, very protective of their secrets, um, they're usually assholes and they don't want to share anything. Um, it's, and it's really a shame. I, I think the members, the taxi members, uh, kind of are, it's, it's sort of a pay it forward attitude. Mm -hmm. um, I see that in the taxi forum. Uh, I, I see that from you. You exude that all the time because, oh, I mean, look, look what you're doing on taxi TV. You're paying it forward. You're not charging. This is not Patreon. I know. I should be charging. You should be charging three dollars a month for this uh, service. But yeah, and and you get that a lot at, at the taxi rally. Other conferences, not so much, because it's it's a very cutthroat industry, and and you've got people. You know, hey, introduce me to that music supervisor. Right. Uh, no, I can't. Right. Become my writing partner. You know, a few times a year, and maybe at next year's road rally, I'll introduce you to that person. Yeah, and I, I've had uh, friends at the rally say, "Oh, let me introduce you to you know so and so." You know, I write for him. Mm -hmm. You know, you could write for him too. Um, you met Kevin Kiner at the road rally. Can you talk about that relationship and what came of it? That was seven or eight years ago, and I did exactly what you said don't do, is that I went up to him really? after the panel. I said, "Here's my seat." <laughs> <laughs> He's such a nice guy. He rolled with it. No, huh? well. <laughs> I mean, I did like everybody else. I, I stood in line, and I and I just wanted to meet him, and I introduced myself, and we chatted a little bit, and tried to make it a personal conversation. And I, you know, I told him, I said, I admire everything you're doing, uh, you know, what you've been doing. And he, that, he's a, a legit like a level TV. Well, at the time, he was working on CSI Miami, right? Um, and he had done the Clone Wars animated show and right. stuff. And I said, you know, I, I mean, everything you're doing, I, I, I'd like to be doing that as well. And so teach me how to kick teach your Teach me butt. how to do that. <laughs> um, and I said, um, w would you listen to my, my CD? And I, you know, I wasn't really pushy about it. And he goes, oh, yeah, I'd love to, man. I'll, and he took it and he said, yeah, I'll listen to this. And I mean, I've been through this dance before. And I, I figured, yeah, okay, pal, you're going to go out and drop it in the first trash can receptacle that you see. That's a car outside, by the way. <laughs> 
and uh, <laughs> and and believe it or not, ten days later, he called me. He didn't send me an email. He called me on the phone, and he said, "Oh man, I really like your stuff. I'm working on a show. Do you want to write some cues for it?" Hmm. Let me think about that. I could be busy next week. No, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I got yeah, of course, really excited. And yeah, I said yeah, and. Um, it wasn't, you know, co-writing on, on CSI Miami as a ghost writer, which is very common. But it was, you know, a reality show uh, on TLC, mm-hmm. and it was cool. Um, I got a lot of tracks. Now, now the deal at the time was he took 50% of the writer's share. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he let was her, giving you entree, so he was acting as your it publisher. It is, and, you know, when we, we're going to talk about contracts at, at some point today, but, and that's one of the things I, I recommend not doing is giving away writer's share unless it benefits you in a substantial way. And in this case, I got a lot of cues in that library. I got a lot of airplay. I made a lot of money from that. And I have to say 50% of all this stuff was tons better than 100% of nothing. Mm-hmm. So, And you got a relationship. And I got a relationship, and he wrote the forward in my book. Oh, and he invited me to write cues on Jane the Virgin. And... I wrote some guitar cues, and one of them, I wrote it for season four last year, and one of the cues became Joan's romantic, Jane's romantic theme, and they're using it again this season. Nice. So this relationship built up to that. And that's broadcast network primetime dollars right there. It is, yeah. I mean, CW is not as as high high as NBC. I I thought it was on Fox, but it's on CW. So it's just just a little bit lower, but it's way above uh, uh, local cable. Right. Um, so, you know, it's a good relationship, and there's still a writer split on that, but, I, you know, that's fine. I've developed this rapport with him. Yeah, Kiner's a nice guy. Maybe it's time to have him back. I yeah, haven't had I him. So. It's been been a while. I, I We haven't done one of those things where we've had a big-time composer score a scene live in front of the audience. That might be. Can you please make a note, Kevin <laughs> Kiner? Um Okay, let's move on to know how to use your DAW, which uh, means digital audio workstation, for those of you who don't know the shorthand lingo, DAW. Um, Well, this follows under the hack uh, category of do your homework. Yeah. So uh, the first one is learn how to use your DAW. Know your DAW in and out, inside and out. Um, You don't want to be wasting time figuring out how do I set a marker here, or how do I loop this section, or how do I add an instrument? Um, You want to be able to do this stuff quickly and efficiently, and you want to spend time writing music, not programming your your computer. So basically it becomes like driving your car. You know where, you know, the air conditioning button is, and you go there almost out of force of habit, and that's the level of familiarity people need. Absolutely, that's a a perfect uh, uh, explanation. Um, Yeah, if you had to figure out where the air conditioner was every time you got in your car, you'd be dead. You'd be dead. (laughs) (laughs) And that's funny to us for some reason. (laughs) Oh, well. Um, Is there a methodology to learning? I mean, obviously, you should just put music through it and sit down. Is it a fair statement to say, make some tracks before you have to make some tracks. Yes, I, I do the same thing with, with when I get a new music library is that I, virtual instrument library is that I 
just write a track using those instruments so I learn how they work. Same thing with the DAW. Put in, whether you're doing uh, uh, microphone instruments like a guitar or vocal or something, you know, set up those, get the compressors set up, the EQ, just so you know how to use these things. And the same thing with MIDI instruments. Figure out how to set those up and how to do quantization um, and just all those editing features that you need to learn. Um, you could open up their instruction manual and, and read through hundreds of pages that it's really tedious and boring. I, I'd recommend going on YouTube. There's tons of great videos of people showing you how to do a certain feature. Um, or I recommend a service um, Groove 3, which they do instructional videos. Oh, other taxi members have told me about that. Uh, you talk about it in the book as well, right? Uh, I. I didn't know about them at that time. Oh, okay. We well, talk about something in the book, uh, one of the services that uh, you've used. Yeah, there were, um, um, let's see. Um, and I'm talking about that book right there. I know <laughs> lynda.com Linda has always had some instructional uh, videos on uh, software like Logic and Photoshop and things like that, but they typically tend to be dated. And Groove 3 is uh, constantly updated. Uh, I'm, I'm now on Cubase, and they've just released a whole bunch of uh, videos on Cubase 10, which you know came out a few months ago. Let's talk about which DAW to use, because pretty much everybody, you know, the Pro Tools people love Pro Tools, um, the Logic people love Logic, the Cubase people love Cubase. Uh, what's the other one? I'm thinking uh, um, there's one that a lot of EDM. Ableton. Yeah, Ableton. Well, there's Ableton. There's Studio One. There's uh, Digital Performer. Um, and, and sonar. Now, the, the best DAW is the one that you're used to, honestly. I was a sonar cakewalk user for 30 years before Gibson destroyed the company <laughs> and went out of business. And I had oh, crap. They were going to be a sponsor at the road rally. Now you blew it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I had to move on and I ended up choosing Cubase. Uh, another company ended up picking up Sonar, but I'm, I'm gone at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, if I had to go back, I could, I'd have to relearn it. Um, uh, what about if you have to go grab files and just export the session yeah. and dump it in? Yeah. And fortunately, I've only had to do that a, a few times. Um, so, But why? all these dolls, they're, they're almost, it's a level playing field for the most part. There are some features that Cubase has that Sonar didn't have and vice versa. And just learn how to, you know, uh, do it in there in the different way. What about the interoperability? I think you would call it. Uh, let's say that you need a vocalist to lay a vocal on something, and you want to send them, uh, you know, the session so that they can overdub on. It. Is there any compatibility stuff going on? Well, you're not. You shouldn't be sending them a Logic session or a Cubase session. Just export as straight. You should files. export the WAV files or the yeah. AIF files. And they'll just in import them, and you tell them what the tempo is, and they'll put it in their DAW, and as and whether it's in a 44.1 or a 48k uh, file format, you know you got to work that out ahead of time. But then just they're going to plug those tracks into their DAW, record their part, and just send you their part back. And then you record, then you put their audio file in, into your project. How advanced does a relatively new user need to be in order to have that level of of um, competence in order to send files back and forth and do what you just explained, choosing the, the right file format, um, 
uh, all that stuff. And well, it's like everything. There, there's a bit of a learning curve. You got to you know figure out what the right things to do are and how can I send these files? Can I email them? Are they going to be too big? A lot of people use either Dropbox or uh, uh, you know you send it or some one of these services that allows you to transmit files over the internet. And you know it's it's. If, if you're collaborating with somebody, they've probably done it already, and they can explain it to you how to, how to do it. Um, same with publishers. They say, oh, I prefer you to send our tracks using um, WeTransfer, mm -hmm. you know, or one of these services. And then the, and they'll tell you, you know, what their expectations are. They'll tell you what the data, the format that they're expecting. So, you know, when you export your, your tracks, you need to set it to you know what they're asking for 48k 16-bit or 48k 24-bit um, they'll give you the specs and tell you what to do now if you don't know how to do that that's when you need to go to YouTube or you know Groove 3 or something and figure out how do I export a track yeah absolutely you know? but there are just basic things that you need to know how to do in your DAW to get by there's tons of all kinds of stuff that it's that 80-20 rule 80% of the stuff you'll do will take up 20% of the available functionality. The rest is just bells and whistles. Yep, the Pareto principle. I referenced it in one of my uh, panels over the weekend. Um, knowing your instruments, virtual and real, let's tackle virtual first. Um, I've heard this advice given out by several taxi members in the know and they say, you know, it's going to be 80-20 again. You're going to use 20% of your instrument possibilities in any given library to do 80% of your work. So do you keep any sort of running list? Do you um, favorite stuff? How do you know? When you're looking for a drum sound or you're looking for a string sound uh, and you intuitively know, okay, so this is kind of a big orchestral anthemic, you know, we're going to war piece. Um, and you know that certain strings will sound better on that than other strings will. Mm -hmm. And that it may be that you're using violins from one library and violas from another because in the context of this piece, that, that's what works. How do you remember all that stuff? Oh uh, boy, it's, it's difficult. I, what I recommend is creating templates. So you open up a project with all the tracks that you will use for that type of music. Say you're writing a trailer track then you know you're going to use this kind of string sound like you, like you just said. So those tracks are going to be in there already. These kind of drum sounds are going to be in there already. These kind of um, uh, bram, brass sounds are going to be in there already. If I want to uh, do something uh, slightly different, I can go ahead and search for something and load it in. But I've got 99% of what I would typically use already in there. And I just make modifications as I see fit. So do you copy that template over and, and start a new... Um, well, most DAWs have a way to open up a track based on a template. Oh, okay. So I have a template called Trailer, I have a, te a template called you know, Piano Solo, I have a template called uh, you know, Polka. <laughs> <laughs> Sad but true. <laughs> That's cool. Um, now let's talk about real instruments for a minute. and. Tell them the dirty, not dirty little secret, tell them the exciting good little secret about uh, real instruments. Uh, and I don't know if I can, 
if you I don't can, have to be that good. <laughs> that's what I was going for, which is it's more about the texture and the tone than it is about virtuosity. And, yeah, and with digital editing, you can do so much to fix bad playing. <laughs> <laughs> so, for instance, let's say somebody is not a guitar player. I think somebody actually asked me this question the other day. Uh, if you're not a guitar player, but something calls for a guitar. Um, and the, the question I got from the audience uh, in Hawaii was, are there good um, guitar samples out there? And my answer was, yes, there are great guitar samples out there. However, it doesn't come with a player. You know? <laughs> and, and you have to understand the nature. If you're working with virtual instruments, you have to understand the nature of what that instrument does and, and what a virtuoso string player would do or what an orchestral string section would do as far as the articulations and such. Well, the same thing would be true for an acoustic guitar. It's one thing to just go brum and have it strum. It's another thing to have it strum with a little bit of soul, you know, mm -hmm. and, and getting that nuance in there. So are you saying if you need a guitar part rather than using a sampled acoustic guitar part, even though you're not a very good acoustic guitar player, just hit that chord and then you'll, with it. Yeah, you'll, you'll end up doing a lot of editing to create a part, but it is possible. If you don't have access to a real guitar player, um, and you can't perform it well yourself, but you can play it one note at a time. It is possible for you to edit it in a way that's that'll sound okay when it's mixed in with all the other stuff. So you mean I could actually do Stairway to Heaven someday? You could. It might take me a year to edit that sucker, <laughs> but I could do it. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, what are some good examples of acoustic instruments that are what they do is they fool the listener into thinking more of the track is done with real humans than actually is done with real humans. Um, by just simply laying an acoustic guitar, doing arpeggiated strums on top of something, the imperfections in the humanity of what your right hand does, I think fools the brain into thinking, oh, is that real or is it Memorex? Well, uh, some of these sample libraries, they have like fret noise and squeaks on guitar <laughs> what people have been trying to take out for trying for to take out but by <laughs> putting it in it makes it sound human yeah um, so there are libraries take let's take guitar for example an acoustic guitar there are libraries that will have uh, a sound of a strum brum but then they're starting adding performance elements so they have rhythm so dun 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 dun, dun you know that kind of a, a pattern and then there's variations on that so it's possible to to create a track um, where you're just pressing the key down and it's playing a G chord and with some kind of a syncopated rhythmic pattern. Um, are, are there patterns that are, what's the song? Uh, I'm thinking of a funk hit from like four years ago. Um, I can't think of the name of the song or the artist, but um, stuff that really puts a, a lot of like backbeat in the, in the part and that you could play like really funky parts with it and it works and actually sounds good. Well, there, there are some libraries that, that are using a lot of loop-based uh, parts where it's a one-bar pattern or a four-bar pattern, and then you're able to change the, the, the key that it's in. Do they have a Nile Rodgers library? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Because, man, that, Nile Rodgers' right hand makes every record he's on sound like a hit. Yeah. That dude's yeah. really good. Um, Let's move on to understanding the ins and outs of style of music you're creating. Uh, we touched a little bit on you know playing to your strengths before, but what do you mean by understanding the ins and outs of the style? Well, 
Um, that means if you're if you're a, a polka player, and and you want to uh, you want to learn you want to write a jazz cue, but you don't know the ins and outs of the jazz style. The jazz style means what type of harmonies they use, what type of instrumentation they're using, uh, what type of, of rhythms that they'll play in, um, how the mixes are balanced. Um, all, all these elements you need to really understand because if, if you don't play it in an authentic way, people will, will be turned off by it, mm -hmm. first of all. Yeah, it will sound inauthentic by the end of the first bar. Yeah, authenticity is is huge. Even if you're not a good player, but if it's a really authentic performance, uh, you can get away with a lot of sloppiness, and then it's, you know sounds more human. Right. I like humans. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we we talked about this kind of uh, know your weaknesses. Don't do everything if you can't do it. Seek help. So does that apply to Production? Does it apply to engineering? Does it apply to playing? Does it absolutely? Uh, you know, can you give some specifics as to? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, in, in playing, if you can't play guitar very well, uh, sorry, you could spend hours and hours editing a part, and it might, you know, sound okay. But it's better to bring in a real musician who can play it. So, how would you typically? Let's go with that exact scenario, and you made a buddy at the road rally and you reach out to that person, do you make them a 50-50 partner for putting on one piece? The, let, let's go with the fact that it's, it's fairly key. Uh, do you give them 50-50? Do you pay them 100 bucks? How, how do you compensate them? Whatever you guys work out, whatever. Um, whatever. People are gonna wanna know kind of what's the yeah. range. So, um, I mean, I would consider somebody, first off, if I would hire a musician, I would hire them as a session player and I would pay them for that session. And then they would in turn sign a work for hire agreement that says, I don't, I'm not claiming any, any rights to this music at all. I'm just performing on it and that's it. The only right you have is when the movie comes out in the theater, you can stand up and yell, I played the guitar part. Exactly. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> and then they will escort you promptly out of the theater. Yeah, but if somebody's coming up with a part that you didn't write and they're very creative and it's, um, uh, like Louis Shelton played the guitar part on Lowdown, Boss Gag's Lowdown. That Significant. Was, yeah, yeah. He made up that part. So he should have been credited with some writers for that. So it's it's a negotiation if, you know, the player says, you know what, I, I think I deserve some of the writer's share. Or as a composer, you say, you know what, you made this song great. I'm going to split the writer's share or I'm going to give you 10% or I'm going to, you know, you work out something that you feel is uh, equitable. And if you're a good person paying it forward. Um, let's say that you talk to your guitar player friend and he's coming over or sending you, you know, doing it remotely, uh, and you hire him just to play a funky rhythm part. But he comes up, and, and so he has, you guys have set the deal before the session takes place that he's just a, a hired gun and you're gonna pay him 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it is for the part. And then he comes up with the magic lick. Uh, the, I call it the Dwayne Hitchings look because he came up with on the Rod Stewart song. I think that one ended up in a lawsuit, I think. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that person that was hired just to play a, a, a part, a kind of insignificant part, if you will, 
but then they come up with something that becomes significant, even though that wasn't in the plan and you like it a lot, you should be menchy enough to say, you know what, dude, even though I was only going to pay you a hundred bucks and that, and you were going to do this part at that point, I think I would say to the person, how about if I don't pay the hundred bucks, but I give you 50% on the writing of this because what you did is significant. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the way people should work together because that person that's in kind should do that for you a year later when you come up with a part for them. Yeah, now the session mus musician may say, may think to himself, well, the song's really not very good. I'd rather have the hundred dollars. Right. <laughs> okay, you know. Right. But if he says, you know, this is a killer song, I think you're right, I think it's gonna do something. I'll take that, that percentage. Okay. Um, do you use any standard forms for like writer split agreements or work for hires, things like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, there's actually one, a copy of one, a work for hire in, in my book. Uh, but you could just search the internet. You can, you can, you know, get it from a music attorney. Uh, there's lots of ways, ways to get this stuff. See, like, here's a library music composer agreement exclusive. And I'm not going to tell you what's in it because then you won't buy the book. you got to buy the book yeah, to buy see the, it. Buy the book. Um, let's talk about contracts. Uh, it feels like a, a good natural yeah. place to talk about uh, a library agreements. That's how this whole conversation, that's how today's show started. Steve actually said to me, um, I'd love to talk about various kinds of agreements and, and clauses within agreements that you should mm -hmm. watch out for. So uh, can you give us kind of a, an example, two or three of, you know, bullet points of what typical library contracts sound like, music production, music library contracts, um, you know, 50-50, exclusive, non-exclusive, talk about that stuff and then talk about the clauses that should be avoided. Yeah. So the first thing I'm going to preface this, this section of the show is... You're not an attorney. I'm not an attorney. I knew that about Even you. Even though I play one on YouTube. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say RTFC, read the effing contract. <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> That's great. It's actually, it actually comes from RTFM, read the effing manual. <laughs> That's the. No, everybody goes with the quick start guide. Come on. <laughs> um, okay, so raise your hand if this is you. You've, you've never had your music in a music library, you're just starting out, and a, you get an email in your inbox from a music publisher that says, we love this track or tracks that you sent in, either through Taxi or other. Only through Taxi, because we're the only thing in the world that exists. <laughs> and we, we want you to sign this, uh, we'd like to sign your track. Here's the contract. Um, how many of you have sent that track that you're so excited about getting your music in a library that you didn't even read the contract, you just flip through the page, where do I sign, where do I sign, and you send it back. I've seen the opposite. Uh, we've had a fair number of members that call us up. They're, they're white, they're sweating, they look like they're gonna pass out over the phone, and, and they say, I, I didn't respond to them because I was afraid they'd rip me off. So there, that's the uh -huh. other end of the spectrum. But go ahead. Well, we'll talk about yeah. the clauses that, well, um, and, and just as an aside, I, I spoke to a, a publisher friend recently. I was telling him about some of these things. And he was saying, yeah, I sent a contract to somebody. They opened up the email. And within three minutes, he got it back, which means they, they downloaded it, printed it out, 
signed it, scanned it, emailed it back. Look, honey, I've got a publisher. Exactly. So, okay, who raised their hands? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, typically, there's going to be two types of agreements, exclusive or non-exclusive. Exclusive means that that publisher uh, owns the piece of music now. They have the exclusive right to place that music, and you can't do anything with it ever again, basically. We just had a member submit something that was signed to a library, to a taxi listing, which happened to be for the same library. It got forwarded to the person who owns the library, and she <laughs> called them up and went, what the hell? You and I have an exclusive deal, and you're still pitching it. Uh-huh. Oof. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, yes. So Continue on. I just had to include Don't that. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> So most, most exclusive library deals are in perpetuity, which means they just, they'll own it forever. Some of them Why? have- Why? Why are they so onerous? Why do they need to own my music forever? <laughs> and others are, uh, will, will have a reversion clause where you can get your music back after a certain amount of time. Usually like three years or Three five to five years, years something yeah. like that. Um, Non-exclusive means it's in their library, but you have the right to place it in other libraries or, or license it yourself. What will happen then is, as a non-exclusive library, is that they will retitle the track before they will register it with your PRO. Anybody else who has your music, they have to uh, register it with your PRO with their title. The, with their title, you're the writer, so you can't have all these same the same song with the same title multiple times registered. But Steve, isn't it illegal? And I know you're not an attorney. Isn't it <laughs> illegal to take the same piece of music and give it different titles and register them under different names? That sounds like a scam. <laughs> no, it's not, and that's common practice. Um, problem with that, and and networks have been cutting, um, uh, getting, telling people, publishers, that they will not accept music unless it's exclu exclusive. Because what happens is that they will get submissions from publisher A, publisher B, publisher C, so they're doing a show, and they're all submitting their tracks for the show. And what if your music, is, the same track is on this library's, this library's, and this library's track. And under different titles, mind They're you. under different titles, but it's the same exact track. Right. Same master recording, same composition. And the music supervisor hears the track from the first library and goes, oh, I like that. I mark it, and I put it down here. And then they get to the second library, and they're going through all the tracks. And they go, God, this one sounds, wait a minute, didn't I just l listen to that one? And they find out that it's, it's in the same track. Well, who do they license it from? Which library do they license it from? I think it's easily solved by first over the transom is the person, you know, who, and, and all, it's going to be time stamped uh -huh. um, because it probably came, well, you know what? It wouldn't be, if they got three hard drives, let's say, with a thousand tracks each, it's not as time stamped as getting an email. Yeah, I, I mean, I asked uh, super, music supervisor Jen Malone about yeah. this question, and, and her answer was, "Whoever sent it to me first. Yeah, that makes it's the only fair, that's fair thing. That's common to do. sense. Yeah, but now what happens is, this music supervisor li is licensing it from Library A, but they have a deal to only license the track for a hundred dollars, whereas the deal with license Library B, they would have licensed it for five hundred dollars. Well, you just shot yourself on the foot." Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what if the cheaper library is the third library that sent it to them? The timestamp no longer has any meaning because they're going to go with the cheapest one. Yeah, exactly. So, um, 
even with non-exclusive stuff, personally, I treat it as, as if it were signed exclusively. Right. The only reason I would sign it elsewhere, uh, I, I wouldn't sign it with another library, but if I were to license it myself, then I would do that. Makes sense. I know um, Matt Hurt, one of our longest uh, income earning and makes a, a nice living doing music, and he's very meticulous about the business side of things. He's always treated um, exclusive or non-exclusive deals that he signed as exclusive. In other words, it's a non-exclusive library, but he doesn't put it in five others. We have other mutual friends who will take the same piece of music and put it in 20 libraries. Mm -hmm. and, and they're making six-figure incomes mm -hmm. and nothing's ever come back to bite them on the butt. So, I don't know. Well, the only thing that where it will bite them in the butt is when networks stop utilizing services that are uh, packages of non-exclusively signed tracks. It hasn't become widespread even though it's been talked about it's for been years. talked about a lot yeah. yeah but I can only think of a couple of networks and they're they're big broadcast networks that it's like eh, no more uh, non-exclusives but yet the people that we both know that make a lot of money with non-exclusives hasn't haven't really been hurt by it mm -hmm. so typically any contract that you get from a publisher whether it's exclusive or non-exclusive it's going to typically say we the publisher will uh, collect 100% of the publisher's share of the back-end royalties. You as the writer will, sh will collect 100% of the writer's share. That's typical. You're splitting it half and half. They take the publishing, you take the writers. Okay? Now, license fees, that's... Which are the upfront fees. Let's say they're going to give you 2500 bucks to put something in the show. So there's different types. There's a license for if they license that one track. And usually the agreement is, if they license a track, we'll split that license with you 50-50. That's pretty common. But then there's this thing called a blanket license. So a publisher takes a hard drive with a thousand songs on it, and they just ship it to this music supervisor or network, and they say, here's all the songs that we have available for a blanket license that covers everything you're free to use use this as much as you want all you can eat it's an all you can eat and we'll renew this every year mm -hmm. if you choose to continue so how does a publisher fairly cut up that blanket license to split it with all the composers there could be a thousand tracks it could be uh, uh, 700 different composers and it might be that only 136 of the tracks by 42 of the composers actually get used during the course of a season. Exactly. So what, what's fair? Um, in my experience, I've never seen any share from blanket licenses. This is just mathematically, it's too hard to figure out in a fair way. Well, I know libraries that will do that, and it's a huge pain in the butt to do the math on that or do the. But a lot of these libraries are mom and pop shops. It's right. one or two guys, and I understand. And I sort of, it's sort of a given that I'm probably not going to see any money from a blanket license. Yeah, because you can't really. Let's say you get five grand for a season on a thousand tracks on on a blanket. Um, I guess you could then apportion, you know, uh, let's say, let's 
just to make the math easy, let's say there are a thousand composers that cranked out a thousand tracks and the library gets five grand. So the library would take half of that five grand in theory. I'm talking theory and no, I'm not a music attorney. Um, yeah, because they're still going to go with that 50-50 split. They're going right. to get half of it and you guys get the rest of it. Right, so now they're going to take the 2,500 bucks and divvy it up amongst a thousand people. And frankly, it's not a very significant amount of money at that point in time. A dollar forty-two. It used to be, <laughs> you know, that blankets would be twenty-five grand or fifty grand, and now they're more like five or ten thousand for, especially in the world of reality TV. So there's really not enough to justify doing the the work of apportioning it out. And a lot of libraries are giving away blanket licenses for free because they because they want to get those tracks used, and everybody will collect money on the back end. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, that's okay, too. So You're getting something. Uh, people will reach out to us and say, you know, uh, I, I ran this contract from this library by my attorney, and they live in, you know, Evansville, Indiana, and who's your attorney? Well, it's my wife's brother, but he took some music law courses when he was in college. He's a real estate attorney here in Evansville. And um, the first thing that guy is going to say is, oh my God, don't give up half your publishing. Don't give up 100%. Don't ever give up your publishing. Well, that's true. If you're a hit songwriter, you would try to hang on to your publishing. But for uh, you know a 90-second instrumental cue that's probably going to earn you $26 next year, why would you pay an attorney 350 bucks an hour minimally to even look at this contract when that's the world that you're going to be living in? So Although I'm not saying don't ever use attorneys, but you might find that reaching out to other people who have signed a deal with that same library and go, how have they been on a business level? Mm -hmm. uh, do you get paid on a regular basis? Do you feel like they're ripping you off in any way, shape, or form? Do you know other people in that catalog? Are they happy with them? Oh, they are? Okay. So that's a good barometer. Again, if you were writing songs for Beyonce, definitely have an attorney involved. Yeah. But, but let's, let's talk about some things that are in contracts that... Yeah, the bad, if, the tricky clauses. If you're, tricky clauses, if you're not reading... And I understand you're not, you don't know legalese, you're not an attorney. I recommend hiring a music attorney to read over a contract, especially if it's your first one. Okay. It's a learning experience. It's expensive, but it's a tax deduction. But find a lawyer that actually knows music library contracts, and there are very few of those, yeah. I find. Yeah. Reach out to other taxi members that are successful in the music library world and get a recommendation on an attorney. Because you could hire, you know, Donald Passman, who is probably the most revered music attorney out there, certainly the best known. Um, I don't think Don would know much about it. He would look at it and go, okay, this is fair, this isn't, but he doesn't understand that part of the business because it's not something in his wheelhouse. Whereas a smaller attorney who maybe has 70% of his or her clients our people cranking out TV tracks would know exactly what to advise you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, get to the right attorney. Yeah. So we talked about blanket licenses, also mentioned direct license. A direct license is exactly like the blanket license. They're paying you a fee to use all these tracks for as long as, for whatever, all you can eat. The difference is a direct license, they don't participate in PRO. Which means their network doesn't isn't a, a, a signatory. Is that the right yeah. word for ASCAP or BMI or CSAC? Correct. So they don't pay anything on the back end. 
So that's that's the bad part. You you'll never see royalties from it. So Scripps Network, which is HGTV, Food Network, and I forget what else, but they've always been that way. Now I've heard that they were changing. They were going to be working with PROs. I've heard that as well. I don't know if that's happened yet. So so here's a case in a contract that I that I I got from a, a, a publisher. Um, oh, and, and I'm going to say this first. Whenever you, you have a relationship with a publisher, ask to see the contract first before you do anything. So I, I met this publisher, um, and I started writing some tracks for him. And I, I did three tracks, and they said, okay, we're gonna, we need to submit these you know, for this album that I'm, I'm putting out. Here's the contract. And I got the contract, and it's like, oh, okay. I said, um, <clears throat> sir, why are you expecting to, ha to take 100% writer share for direct licensing? He said, first he became defensive immediately. That's not what it says. But that is our contract. If you have pause, please do not sign it. And so I cut, copy and pasted the clause. I said, company shall collect and retain both 100% of the publisher's share and 100% of the writer's share. So did he Frankenstein a contract from other people's contracts and not even know what was in his own contract? Uh, I have a feeling. Yeah. Which, again, mom and pop guys, they, they probably get it off the internet somewhere and didn't even know it was in here. Probably. But again, now he's defensive. Hmm. Uh, yes, it, it appears it does say exactly that for direct licensing. <laughs> <laughs> but wh <laughs> Sir, why do you need my writer's share for direct licensing? I can't agree to this. That's fine. We'll remove your track from the folder tomorrow. Uh, this is quite unusual, and I don't understand the need for this particular stipulation. If you remove it, I'd be happy to sign up. Uh, no worries, we've taken your content off the volume. So, okay, so here's the thing with direct licensing. If they're not working with PROs, there is no writer's share to begin with. But the fact that <laughs> it's in there, and he's very defensive about it, because I don't, I don't know what kind of relationships internationally he might have and how this plays out. Do I know this person? We'll talk later. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to mention any names. <laughs> Is it some... Perhaps. First initial J? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway, so yeah. So I did, I felt very uncomfortable with this clause in the contract. I just felt like he's trying to be sneaky or something. You know, he's, at best, being diabolical. At best, dopey. Either dopey or sneaky, and those neither of them is a good option. Right. Um, okay. Which door for you, dopey or sneaky? <laughs> um, so it's, I mean, it's a good thing I read it. Now, I had written several tracks. These tracks aren't going to waste. They'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. Um, case number two. Now, this is this was not uh, something that happened to me, but a colleague um, said got a blind solicitation from a music library offering $25 per queue, work for hire fee, and they keep 50% of your writer's share. Wow. Okay. And 100% of the publisher's share. Yeah. For all so, for $25. Knowing that keeping 100% of your writer's share is standard and someone taking your writer's share is actually pretty unethical. So you might be in a position where you say, God, you know what, I could use that $25. But you've cut your writer's share in half. Mm. So this is why I say never, ever give up your writer's share, even though I did it with <laughs> Kevin Kiner. Um, because we don't know 
I don't know anything about this library. I don't know what kind of connections they have, what kind of uh, uh, placements they get, if it's on network TV. It could end up being okay. Oh, but it gets better. So if they tell a network TV show, you can use anything from our library for $3,000 per episode total, then they'll keep 100% of that share, publisher share and 50% of your writer share. But hey, you get $25 up front and 50% of a writer share on a cue sheet. Um, if you see a deal or a blind email, looks like sounds like this. Read deeper into it and read their standard agreement. Um, oh, reading more of the agreement. This is where it gets better. You're also not allowed to mention that you wrote any of the cues or mention any of the placement in any way to further your career. Why? I don't understand that. Says you, um, says you can't get IMDb credits or credit anywhere other than the 50% writers on a cue sheet. Then says if they sell the library in total to another library, you will not be entitled to any percent of the proceeds. That could be standard. I don't know. Yeah, that, that I understand. Uh, so this is a great example of a music library that's building up a catalog for the sole purpose of just selling it to a bigger library because it's a clean delivery, no money owed to the composers who contributed. It's all work for hire, so 100% owned by the li library, and it comes with built-in publisher share and built-in 50% of writer share. Forever and ever, and you're contractually, contractually forbidden to ever disclose, hey, I wrote that piece. I don't understand that. Do you have any idea why they would include that? I couldn't think of one reason why they would want to say that. I can't either. But you know what? $25 a track. Woohoo! But here's the thing. So you think, okay, I'll just I'll submit my worst tracks and I'll just make all this money from it. Right. Well, they have to accept the track. It's got to be a qu good quality enough that they would want to use it so they can make money off of it. You know, you're still going to make 50% of the writer's share. Um, but $25 is, in my mind, not worth giving up 50%. It's, you know... 50% of the writer's share. Of the writer's share. Yeah. So it's possible that a track in its lifetime could earn less than $100. Or it could earn $10,000. There are a lot of tracks that earn nothing. You know, that, that's something else that we should qualify this whole discussion with is... Um, 80% of the tracks that you get in libraries over, let's say, a five-year period are not going to earn you a penny. So please don't sit by the telephone or stare at your, you know, your iPad or your laptop uh, going, but, you know, I just signed 10 things with that library over a six-month period. Uh, why haven't I made any money yet? Because nobody needed from that library what you've got sitting in there. It's not really necessarily their fault. It's just there wasn't a need for that kind of music. So there's that. <laughs> okay, so here's another contract, um, and I and I knew this publisher personally, and uh, it, it was an exclusive deal, but there was some wording in here that I just let go. I, I, I saw it, and I just let it go. Uh, said, the terms of the agreement shall commence as of the execution date and shall continue for a period of three years. And... Um, Unless you, we provide the other party with notice of our intention to terminate the term by written notice given at least 90 days prior to the end of this five-year period. Well, we just had three years, the sentence before. Definitely a Frankenstein contract. Yeah. 
Then the term shall therefore continue for an additional five years until written notice, blah, 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 um, until 90 days prior to the expiration of, the, of each subsequent three-year three year term. Okay, so he has three years in there twice, five years in there twice. That's a lot of conviction. Um, and, and honestly, I, I just, I thought, you know what, I, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to ask for these tracks back. You know, let's, let's present our viewers with a caveat. If you're talking about a solo piano piece, eh, it's not a big deal. I know, I'm not saying get yourself or let yourself get ripped off, but if it's a solo piano thing that banged out in a couple of hours, um, it's not worth ruining a relationship or fighting, you know, a death match over that one thing because you can create ten more of those during the course of a week. Mm -hmm. So you got to know, pick and choose your battles. Um, but uh, yeah, and this also is some indication of this company's business practices. They're either sloppy or sneaky. Yes, and the the gist of of this particular story is that I ultimately asked for my tracks back after. Appear up front a, a, peri or? a period of time after okay. several years. <laughs> was it three or five? <laughs> I'll tell you, in a, and I'll tell you. In a minute. It was four and a half. You split the difference. Um, and <laughs> okay, so and just one other thing that they said. Um, talking about uh, buying your tracks back, if the track has, uh, if you've received or deemed to have received an amount during the term equal or greater than $500, spelled out $500, but then in parentheses, 300, <laughs> $300. Maybe they just had defective keyboard where every time you hit the five, it came out as a three, <laughs> or some of the time. So, yeah, I mean, obviously this, this contract started off as one thing and then they made some edits and didn't do it 100%. You have to tell me who these people are when we're done with the show. Absolutely. And no, don't reach out to me and ask me because I'm not going to divulge I, and I, information. Uh, guys, I, I will not disclose who any of these people are. I'm sorry. But I, I want you to. But if you buy this book, <laughs> it's on all page, in there. Say, right, I'm page make... seventy-eight. It's right there, baby. <laughs> um, but there was a clause in here. We were talking about the um, um, a direct licensing, and uh, oh, okay. So he's talking about how you will be paid some money for this direct license, okay, where the other guys, you know, never talk about. We shall calculate your share of each royalty. They, they talk about putting money in a, into a royalty pool. Mm -hmm. uh, your share of the royalty pool by taking the ratio of the number of your songs included in the license divided by the number of all songs licensed to the licensee under this license and multiplying that ratio by the amount of income represented. So, I mean, it's a fair equity. We're just splitting it up evenly, number of composers by the number of Dollars. Is that composers that got used or all composers in the bucket? I read it as all composers. Okay, so okay. if there's a thousand composers, you get one one thousandth times the multiplier. Okay, so uh, there, there came a point when I, I needed to get the tracks back because the publisher stopped working for me. Okay. And, and guys, you need to understand that these music publishers, they work for you. Okay, you're not working for them. If they are not representing you like they say they are, then you need to 
do something about it, get your tracks back. And that's what I did. And I read through the contract and I thought, you know, this is a mess. I need to make sure I can get the, these tracks back. Has it been three years or five years? Um, well, this was 2012. So I actually hired in a music attorney. I hired Erin Jacobson. We endorse Erin Jacobson. She's awesome. She's wonderful. And she is one of the attorneys that actually knows music library contracts. And, and she read through this contract. She says, oh, my God, this is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I felt a little bad because I, I, I should have had him make adjustments so it was a correct contract. But you know what? A lot of libraries don't want to because, number one, they're too small to spend the money. Number two, they don't want to. They're afraid if they do that for you, then you're going to talk to other composers and other composers are going to call up and say, I need you to customize it. And they don't they need to have standardized contracts so because it is one size fits all because if they've got 200, 500, 1,000 composers and everybody's got a slight variation on the contract, they wouldn't know how to even talk to people about their deal. Oh, did he get that deal or did she get yeah. that deal? So uh, I'm not defending people who are sneaky, but I understand why they can't do custom deals for every writer in the catalog. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think that they're trying to be diabolical. I, I think they're just too small and maybe they're overwhelmed and they're trying to do too many things, you know, wearing too many hats, um, and you know, maybe maybe shouldn't be in this business. And it's also worth saying that a music library doesn't do like what Warner Chapel or Sony or one of the big publishers or Universal or somebody would do for you. If you're a hit songwriter or trying to be a hit songwriter and they've picked up your stuff and put it in their catalog, they are pitching your stuff actively. Oh, this would be a hit for Beyonce. This would be, you know, something Halsey would do. And they're going out and trying to play matchmaker in the, generally speaking, not 100% of the time, but most of the time in the music library world, they're filling orders. People are reaching out to them saying, I need, you know, a dramedy cue, an urban dramedy cue or a comedic dramedy cue. I guess that's kind of misnomer but you know what I'm saying that mm -hmm. so uh, before you mentioned that the library wasn't working for you if you're under the delusion that you're gonna sign a contract on a piece of music and they're gonna pick up the phone and they are going to start calling every TV show at every network or even 5% of the shows on 5% of the networks and say I just signed a track from Steve Barden it's awesome you should hear it it's not what they do because who needs that kind of music who knows so they're waiting for those shows to reach out to them do you have this kind of track so understand that in the world of music libraries they are not proactively pitching until the point where they've been asked for something at that point you want to know that they know their catalog well enough to go either they've tagged the stuff well enough that they can search it effectively and submit the right material to the person who requests it or they have personal knowledge and go, you know what, Barden sent me something like three years ago that's never been out there, but I'll bet you this would be really good for that. Uh, you know, so you want that kind of involvement, but just understand that they do not do what one of the big publishers would do with hit songs. Yeah, I, I think a lot of these guys, they just want big numbers of tracks in their library so they can say, we have 10,000 tracks. Right. And they don't know anything about any of the tracks, you know. I, I wonder about the big libraries. I mean, I know that they're very effective. They've got teams of people that know how to search them well. 
and I won't mention any company names, but there are libraries out there with a quarter of a million, half a million tracks. Nobody could know all that stuff. And what happens if somebody who does know a portion of them really well jumps ship and goes from one big library to another mm -hmm. big library, and they take that knowledge in their head, which they will. Um, that's why tagging becomes so important. And mm -hmm. can you come back next week? Maybe. Um, because we should do, we talked before the show today about doing a part two. And well, yeah, I, there's a lot more stuff. Yeah, and, and we've got like three minutes left. Oh, no. Okay. Dandruff. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I, I feel like there's so much more to talk about. Um, heck, we could do an entire show just on um, things to look for in, in contracts. Um, so to reiterate, yeah. read the effing contract. Yes. RT RTFC. I gotta remember that. I've never heard that. I've been in the industry for like forty years. I've never heard RTFC. Um, is there anything we can bang out in like two minutes before we wrap today's episode? Um, do you want to take any questions, or do you want to just give, well, give we, a book away? Let's give a book away because if we take questions, we'll be here for another half hour. Yeah. But I really want you to come back, and I haven't booked anything for next week yet. So if that's possible or even the week after, but I would much prefer next week if you could. Just because okay. we have, that way we can have two parts that are yeah, buttered yeah. right up against each other. Yeah, I think we can make and that I'm happen. And far more important than your job. Right. Much more. <laughs> uh, okay, we are going to play, uh, you know, I will let you know that I actually spent some time over the weekend while I was in Hawaii at that conference, I should look at the camera, um, <laughs> looking at spinning wheels. Uh, so that we could do some contesty oh, yeah. things, you know. Uh, they're expensive. I mean, I found some that are really cheesy for like $47, but nice ones are like 250 bucks uh -huh. for a spinning wheel. And then I realized we couldn't put all their names on a spinning wheel anyway. So we're going back uh -huh. to Bria and her magic finger and how we're going to do this. <laughs> Steven Spinner, speaking of spinning wheel, Steven Spinner's already typing a plus one. For those of <laughs> you who have never been in one of our shows before, what are you waiting for? Um, number one. And number two, here's how we do it. When I go, go, and that wasn't a real go, that was a fake go. When I say go, you guys type in plus one, and Bria is going to shut her eyes and run her finger up and down that chat room, and she's going to land on somebody's name, and that person is going to win a free copy without the post-it notes. I can't, it's so hard working backwards of Steve's really, really, really good book. And if you don't win a copy today and you don't own this book, I know a lot of our taxi members already do own the book, but this is one of the five books everybody should own. Um, it really is. You got to buy it. So, and how much is it uh, to buy it? $29.99, right? I'm going to tell you right, right now, as of today on Amazon, it's $26.82. It says there are only six left in stock. There were like 18 yesterday. I think since you sent out an email, oh, a bunch right. of people went out and bought it. Um, but they they uh, replenished the stock pretty quickly, so um, fear not. The link is in the description. And the link is in the description, Bria just told me. So look, here's the deal. If you guys don't think this book is worth that 26 bucks or whatever you spent, I'm going to give you Steve's home address. He can drive right <laughs> over, and he'll give you a, a back rub or something. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, uh, one, two, three, go. Dun, 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 dun. While you guys are typing in your plus ones, 
I'm going to run through some of the sound effects because my old sound effects machine died and I ordered this one. And so I can kill some time. <laughs> Woo, long laugh. That's a good one. Also good. Oh, that was definitely stolen from money. <laughs> Pink Floyd put that one in there. Uh -huh. And look, I have taped it up to mute the volume level because we have oh, somebody. Oh, so that, loud? Well, somebody wrote me and said, your, your hand claps from this thing are so loud that it hurts my ears. Oh, wow. So now I hold it farther from the microphone, and I wanted this to not be as loud. So. <laughs> and on this week's show, drum roll, Mr. Steve Harden. Uh, let's see. Eh, hold on, I'm busy. <laughs> Bria has a name. Okay. And that name is? I am Woody Bradfield. Woody Bradfield. You are the winner today. Yay, Woody Bradfield. Congratulations, Woody. Woody. Ta-da. You get your very own autographed copy. Look, Steve, I even put a Sharpie. I put a nice. thin line Sharpie and a fatty Sharpie up there for you to autograph the book. Woody Bradfield. Should I should I sign my name or whose name would you like on there? Uh, well, don't sign my name. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, um, oh man, I've got a really bad Woody joke, but I won't say it. <laughs> Dear Woody, I hope you enjoy the book. Love, Steve. That would be good. <laughs> oh man, oh man, I love my job. Um, so, uh, with that. <laughs> <laughs> Dean Kotaska says, sign Andy. <laughs> anyway, congratulations, Woody. Thank you guys for watching. Uh, Steve will be back either next week or maybe the following week, but really soon, hopefully next week, So, because we have a lot more to talk about, and he's such a great guest. So with that, Steve, thank you, buddy. Thank you. I, I really genuinely love having you on the show. You're, you're not only a good guy and a good friend, but you know your stuff really, cool. really well. Thank you. And with that, I bid you, ladies and gentlemen, a fond farewell. See you next week for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Woo!